This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome to this edition of Literary Treks number 231. We are your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network. And I'm Bruce Gibson. And with me as always is our happy-go-lucky guy, Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Hey, Bruce. Pretty happy-go-lucky over here, like you say. Uh, yeah. Anytime, any day I get to talk about Star Trek novels, I'm just skipping down the street with a song in my head and I don't know. Yeah. I'm now that's a visual I'd like to see. If you could put that on Instagram, that would be great. <laughs> I'd need a really you long selfie down. stick to do that. <laughs> and then by that point, I really don't want to know what I look like. So I'm probably not going to do that. <laughs> don't you love the feeling of walking into a bookstore and seeing a new Star Trek novel on the shelf, oh. or even a novel that you've never got, even that used bookstore, one that you've you've always been interested in or never seen, I just, yeah, that that I can get the idea of you skipping now. Absolutely, yeah, no, that is that is a really good feeling. Uh, you know, we we've talked on the show before about back when books used to be. Uh, you know, on the shelf at your local supermarket and there'd be new Star Trek books there. And it feels like it's been a while since that was the case, but I did see the newest Star Trek Discovery book on the shelf at Walmart a few weeks ago, which uh, oh, wow. was really good to see. I mean, I hardly ever go to Walmart, but, uh, you know, they carried a Star Trek novel. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Walmart's your new favorite store because they have Star Trek. Novels. <laughs> Whoa, well, <laughs> won't go that, won't go that far. <laughs> Hashtag not a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I'm here in Los Angeles for this recording. Um, no, I did not come to LA to do this recording. I just happened to be in LA. Wow. We have to do the recording. So I'm here at the W Hotel in Westwood. This is typically my L.A. home. This is where I stay most times that I'm in Los Angeles area. And uh, I'm supposed to tell you hello from Larry Nemechek. Oh. I just spent the last couple hours with him. Awesome. Well, um, you're probably, I, I would guess, not seeing him again on this trip. But I, if you do see him, say hello back. <laughs> 
I yes, I am not going to see him again. One visit with Larry on a trip is enough. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lot of energy. I uh, I, I can understand. <laughs> And those who don't who don't know, they're like, wait, who's Larry Nemechek? Who are you talking about? He's Dr. Trek, and you've probably heard him on the Ready Room and other shows here, and he does Portal 47 and Trekland Tuesdays and, and all that stuff. So And wrote the Star Trek The Next Generation Companion if you if you guys have that on your shelf. <laughs> yes, and stellar cartography and all these ah, oh, he's just he's just the best. He's just the best. Dr. Trek. There you go. <laughs> so and and then, you know, I said that we reviewed last episode, how much for just the planet. And he said, and I said, you know, that came out. He goes, oh, I thought it was, you know, you were doing a lot of old novels. I'm like, well, we are, yeah, going back. We did that one. He goes, well, that was 90s. I said, no, that was 87. And he <laughs> debated with me. And then he remembered and he said I was correct. I was like, there you go. I stumped the doctor. Nice. I, you know. <laughs> I would love, I don't know if we could do it as a special episode of what show it would be, but I want to do like a trivia face-off against him because I I feel like there's not many people in the world that could beat me at Star Trek trivia. That's right. I said it. I put it out there. Mm. Bring it. Don't at me. <laughs> but I, I feel like Larry Nemechek is someone that would probably uh, beat me at that. But maybe Ooh. not. I don't know. I don't know. We need to set that up. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're we'll we'll try to figure how to do that since you both will be at Star Trek Las Vegas. So. Ooh, uh oh, live. Maybe we can do it from there. Mm. Now he's not a, an expert on the books. Granted, you know it's more the TV shows and the movies. Oh yeah, so no, we we, we keep to it to canon track. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll exceed yeah. that for sure. <laughs> okay, he's yes, gonna kick my butt though. I'll just tell you right now. <laughs> Well, I don't think he's ever read A Time to Die, like we're going to cover on today's show, because we don't have any news. This is basically our news, is just what we're doing, what we're up to. Yeah. So um, we'll just go right into the future. Why waste any more time? Let's just do it. Sounds good. So this year, we had decided to do the series A Time to, the next generation series of novels that take place between Insurrection and Nemesis. And a few episodes ago, we did a time to live. Is that right? Time to live? Uh, time to be born. Time to be born. I was like, <laughs> wait, that doesn't sound right. I couldn't remember. It almost sounds like a James Bond type of thing. A time to live. No, a time to be born. So therefore, now we're on to the second book, A Time to Die. Now, See why I confuse live and die? Yeah. If, if people out there are like me, when I'm reading these novels and I put it down and I see the title, I constantly get the bird's song in my head, which I'm sure we talked about when we did A Time to Be Born. But, you know, a time to be born, a time to die. And I just over and over and over again. And, oh, man. I mean, it's a good song, but, man. So that's the soundtrack to this novel. That's really great. <laughs> there you go. We have a soundtrack to a Star Trek novel. Yeah, I could see them all getting together in 10 forward for a jam, you know, or I guess it's the Enterprise E. So it's what is it? The Happy Bottom Riding Club? Is that the the lounge on the Enterprise E? Yes, I think? that's right. Exactly. So these books, I think there's a total of nine. Yeah, right. That's right. Okay. So there's a total of nine and you can see I'm really prepared for tonight's show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, John Vorholt wrote the first book. This is the second book. And 
these are the only two books that prior to doing these episodes, these are the only two books in the time two series that I've read. So when we get to book three, there will be the first time of me reading that book and, and so on and so forth. But, um, so this is my second time reading a time to die. I think that's the same for you too, Dan, right? Uh, this is actually my third time reading it because on two previous occasions, I intended to go through the whole series and, the first time, I think I was halfway through book four, but I, I can't know for sure. Uh, but the second time I read the first two again. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is my third time reading these first two. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the story by now. Okay. Well, let's get into it a little bit here. And then later we will say when we start to get to more spoiler territory, if you want to tune out and read the book and come back later, that's great. So we're not going to spoil it here in the beginning of the feature. So I want to talk about Wesley because he's really the main character of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a prominent character in book one, but I think in book two, he really becomes more the lead character uh, than I think he was in book one. So, his motivation in this book is to save the Enterprise. Shocking. I know. You can't <laughs> believe it, right? Wesley wanting to save the Enterprise. And now this seems to be like one of the sole purposes of this character is he's always trying to save the Enterprise. And I loved how we got Wesley in the first book. He's now a traveler. Mm-hmm. And we see him as a traveler in the first book. And he's trying to help the crew out. And And even at that point, as that book started off, he saw a, I'll just say, a vision of the Enterprise exploding, a future premonition that the Enterprise is going to explode. And so he's been motivated to kind of help the crew out and try to save the ship and prevent that from happening. But I think when we get to this part of the book, it's even more of a driven motivation for him because he's constantly, I guess what I'm getting at is we're getting into the action of the book. So it's a constant rescuing of our crew members and leading them in, in different directions and taking them to different places. And he's jumping all over the place because he has the power to transport himself from one place to the other. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point that it seemed redundant. He was, it seemed like every scene he was in, he was like, I'm transporting out and he's gone before anybody could say goodbye to him. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't like him in this as much as I did the, how the first book started off. I, I, I feel exactly the same way. The first book, it was a novelty and it was a really interesting way that they used his character and his powers. And yeah, in this one, it just becomes a well that they go to over and over and over again to the point where it's just, you know, anytime they're in a situation, you know, Wesley can just kind of pop off and leave and come back and take people with him and come back you know, and the only thing that stops him a couple times is, you know, wanting to keep his identity a secret from the, you know, various people uh, around him and, and various adversaries they come up against. So, you know, it, it just becomes kind of, I think, too easy a plot element to use. And they do use it a lot. Like it just any situation they're in, they're able to get out of via Wesley. Right. Something bad's about to happen. Wesley's like, okay, I'm going to transport over and take care of this. And then somebody's in deep peril. Okay. I'm going to grab you and take you back to the enterprise. Mm. It's just, um, I don't know what it it makes me think of it. it, I feel like it's reminded me of something, the, the constant coming and going. Maybe it was almost like 
a little too much like a superhero. Yeah, maybe something like that. I, I do have to say some of the tension in this story comes from Wesley's kind of knowing in the back of his mind that every time he does this, he's supposedly getting further and further away from being able to be a traveler anymore, which is where a lot of that tension comes from, which, you know, we'll talk about later in the novel too, when we get into more spoilery stuff. But, you know, I, I guess as a, as a motivator, as a bit of tension to, you know, keep him from using his power, it's pretty good, but he, it doesn't, it doesn't keep him from using it. He kind of goes like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, every time I do this, I, I feel like I'm getting further away from being a traveler. Oh, darn. Oh, well. And then he just keeps doing it. And there doesn't seem to be any real consequences that we know of. <laughs> and I don't feel like this is a spoiler, but, you know, we saw in the first book, he was hiding himself from everybody as disguising himself as this Ensign Brewster. Mm -hmm. And he's doing the same thing here, but over time he kind of starts to reveal himself. Yeah. And it just is, it was almost like, well, why was he even hiding his identity in the first place? It just felt like, cause once people were like, Wesley, you're here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And I, I was hiding and, but now you know that I'm involved. So I got to get you out of here. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like a lot of the stuff that the first book kind of set up that was really interesting and really good, this book just kind of waves away a little bit. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like one of those cliffhanger shows that leaves you on a crazy cliffhanger. And then the next week they're like, oh, actually everything's fine or not fine, but, you know, our heroes aren't in as great a peril as we thought they were last week kind of thing which I mean, I guess is kind of part and parcel with cliffhangers. That's kind of what they do, but it was just a little, it took the wind out of the sails of this story a bit for me where, you know, just it kind of deflated and wasn't, it didn't matter as much. It seems. Yeah. I, I still like the Wesley character in these books. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I just felt like, like you said, it seemed to be redundant at times. Um, as if the author is trying to stretch this book a little longer, like trying to reach the the word count that he needed to get to make a book two out of the story that he had. Yeah, that's uh, definitely another issue I'm having here is there's there's a lot of back and forth and I, I don't want to say padding. I, I, I don't know if that's the case, but there seems to be a lot of superfluous story here that I feel could have been trimmed back a bit. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know one thing about what you you had made a note about Wesley. Now, his identity is being is hidden from everyone on the ship including his mother. But she then of course notices that he has returned. Mm -hmm. And she's giddy, right? Yeah. Yeah, she's giddy, she's happy. I kind of made a note here just to remind myself a bit to talk about this because it happens probably not as many times as I'm remembering it happen, but it seems like, you know, everybody's depressed. They're like, oh, you know, this is so bad. Or the situation's horrible. And then Crusher, who knows her son's back and is helping them out, will say something enigmatic like, oh, we have an ally that we never knew we had. And then the scene ends and goes somewhere else. 
But if we'd have stuck with that scene, like Riker or Troy would have turned to her and been like, what are you, who, what are you talking about? And then she, well, I don't know. I can't like, it's just, there's, there's these really silly little bits that just kind of drove me a little bit nuts in this story that, uh, it's, it's like, it's like when the villain is laughing at the end of a scene and the scene fades to black and goes somewhere else. If that scene had continued, it gets awkward and weird. And then like, why are you laughing like that? Staring off into space? <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's one of those tropes that just because that scene's ending and we go somewhere else, those characters don't cease to exist. It just, it's a little thing that just really bugged me in this book. It's like sh- we have a drunk a Beverly Crusher in a sense, because <laughs> there's times where the crew is just worried, you know, oh my gosh, you know, this is a terrible situation. We have to figure our way out of this. And Beverly Crusher is like, I'm sure it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Just imagine she's, she's having a drink. She's like, don't worry about it. It's all going to be <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah. Cause she knows like, Oh, Wesley's taking care of this. And, and yeah, there was times where he's Brewster in the room and she would give him little looks while the other crew's there. And then, Oh wait, I hope I didn't give anything away by looking at him in that way. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and even Wesley's like, Oh gosh, I hope mom didn't give away anything. <laughs> I really think that if, you know, Troy were on top of her game, she would have figured this out or at least known that something really yeah. weird was up, you know. Why sh- why didn't uh, Troy sense Wesley? And you could say, well, he's a traveler. He could hide himself from, from Troy. But yeah, why didn't she sense from Beverly this motherly love that she's feeling right now and this contentment? <laughs> Just, you Great know. joy. And happiness. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it gets a little bit frustrating. But like you say, they kind of do drop that as the story goes on and Wesley reveals himself to the rest of the crew. So, you know, we don't deal with it for long. But again, then that has the effect of kind of undermining the tension that they'd built up in book one with him having to keep himself secret for some reason. So, yeah. It's it's a trade-off that I don't think works very well. Because if he knows that what he's doing could end up losing his traveler powers mm-hmm. because he's violating the rules, then, well, he knows that's going to happen. He's just trying to be quick to help them out as quickly as he can before they catch up to him and take his powers away. So what does it matter if they know it's him? Right. If it's not him or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that that. Yeah. That was a little weird. I mean, I, again, I, it's, I, it's not that I didn't like this. There was just parts of this where it just seems to just fall flat. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah. And, he, and he constantly worries that the more that he reveals himself and the more that he does these things, the harder it will be to do, but that never really materializes. He seems to be popping in and out of everywhere pretty easily. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's almost like one of those horror slasher movies where everybody's like just sneaking around and all of a sudden the Freddy just shows up, <laughs> kills them, except Wesley just shows up and saves them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> well, then we have our counselor, not Troy, but the counselor at Starfleet that, um, I guess at headquarters or whatever that uh, was assigned to 
Picard, and she has to now accompany Picard on the Enterprise because he's still her patient. Mm. And and because of the results of, of book one, and there's this whole question about if Picard is really still up for command and for all the events that happened in book one. And I'm, if you want to know more about that, go to the previous episode where we talk about that. But there's now a romantic relationship between her and Wesley, which I I did not see coming, mm-hmm. at least from book one. Because as a matter of fact, I was picturing her as being a little older. And not that Wesley couldn't be with an older woman. It's just I didn't think, I didn't see it coming where it's like, oh, I bet you know she and Wesley are going to become a couple or anything. So it took me a little bit by surprise when that happened. Um, but did you believe that they had a good chemistry and good relationship in this book? Yeah, this is one of those things that, again, it just sounds like I'm finding fault with this book, but this relationship is just, you know, at they're basically declaring their love for each other in this book. And I, maybe that's a bit of a spoiler. We're getting more towards the end of the book when that happens, but the seeds are planted throughout this book and, you know, they have a physical relationship and they do get close, but it seems to happen really, really fast. And I just, I don't really get the relationship. You know, maybe there's some infatuation there or something like that, but it doesn't seem to be built on this deep foundation or anything like that. Uh, You know, so I had a hard time buying that. I know Star Trek does, you know, the really fast fall in love story a lot. I mean, Kirk had Edith Keeler and Raina Kopek and the original series and all these, you know, he falls in love over the course of an episode, I guess that happens, but it just, yeah, it seemed kind of out of left field. And then, yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll get more into, of course, when we get into spoilers, the whole culmination of everything, uh, felt, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) I like the relationship between the two. I did feel it went a little too fast. Um, it did just seem to come out of left field. You know, he, Wesley took Colleen to show her what had been happening with this ghost ship that we, that was revealed in book one and to prove to her that Picard was right, that he's not crazy and that he didn't make any of this up and that he was correct. I didn't get the sense at that point that there was maybe something developing between the two. But then when she gets on the Enterprise, it just seemed really quick. And I don't know if it's that I felt that she was more pursuing him than he was pursuing her. Mm -hmm. Because I think she realized, you know, what he was and and she liked the abilities he had as a traveler. Yeah. And that's kind of what I meant. Maybe there's some infatuation and some, you know, fascination with his abilities and stuff, I guess, but I I don't want to chalk it up just to that because that's probably selling her feelings a little short, but yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And then I I don't even remember how it happened. Just all of a sudden it's basically, she shows interest and he does too. And they're knocking boots. Oh, they were line dancing. That's what you're <laughs> yes, saying. Yes, exactly. They were they were um they were dancing to the strains of Cadillac Ranch, absolutely. <laughs> 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 
You've never seen that in a TNG episode, have you? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> I think uh, Data did some line dancing with Tasha Yar, too. <laughs> and maybe tap dancing. I don't know. <laughs> Something like <laughs> <With boots>. that. <laughs> Boot tap dancing. Um, <laughs> so what do you think of Colleen Cabot or Cabo, however she pronounces? I'm going to say it's Cabo. You think that's right? Um, or I, like a French? Yeah, I don't know. I kind of pronounced it Cabot. as Cabot in my head, but yeah. Or cabbage? I, <laughs> either or, I'm sure. Works. Colleen Cabbage. <laughs> yeah, this is a character who, you know, the, the Enterprise crew, I think, disliked her in the first book. And then as they get to know her, they like her in the second book. I have to say my experience was kind of opposite to that. <laughs> I didn't necessarily like her in the first book, but I was interested in the character. She was a very um, professional counselor who was a bit of an antagonist because she of her role in what's happening to Captain Picard. And in this book, we get to know her a bit better, but... I, I don't know. I'm not warm. I didn't warm to the character in this book. It seemed like she was, I, I, I don't know how to put it exactly. She, she seemed a little bit aw shucks a little bit, you know, with the like, wow, the enterprise is amazing. You have a spa. This crazy place is great. Wow. Golly gee. And then her infatuation with Wesley and all of that. I was kind of, I don't know. I was a little tired of her. I hate to say it, but I'm like, okay, I, I, Yeah. I don't know. Like you I would said, say I she would necessarily... a Mary Sue, though, would you? No, I would definitely not say that. I, I don't think. I think she just has a couple characteristics in this book that I just didn't really like all that much. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that about the character. In the first book, I felt she was very much the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. uh, just very professional. She's questioning Picard. I liked her character in that book. And I think that's maybe why I was picturing her as being older than what she is. Because they refer to her as being you know, fairly young. Like maybe in her 20s, just like Wesley is. I was picturing her older in the first book because she seemed a little more seasoned in her profession. And, you know, she's... She's a counselor to this renowned captain who's been around for however many years in Starfleet. And so someone so young, it just seems like with all the counselors that would be in Starfleet that she would be assigned to Picard. But I'm not questioning that. But when we get to book two, I found her character still to be interesting, but different than what I thought of in book one. Mm -hmm. And I liked her and knowing that she was blonde and younger than I was picturing and in her twenties, I can't help it. But all of a sudden I assigned a certain actress to her okay. in my head. And I really don't like who I picked. It's not that I don't like her work as an actress, but she's been in the news lately and it's Alison Mack from Smallville. <laughs> oh dear. And I think I used her because I had just, you know, seen some things about her in the news. If And if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, just look up Alison Mack and you'll know what's going on with her. She's yep. in some, you know, crimi criminal, criminal trouble. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she played Chloe on Smallville, for those who want to know. Anyway, uh, so Chloe and Wesley, I mean, <laughs> Colleen and Wesley. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into spoiler territory now. Yeah, I think so, this is definitely a good time. <laughs> this is it. Okay, so those who don't want to listen, then 
turn it off, come back later after you read it, or go ahead and listen and enjoy. So we have uh, Colleen dies mm-hmm. in this book. She gets killed. And you know what? I actually, this took me by surprise. I Now, I read this book a couple years ago, and I didn't remember this. So Wesley, as always, as he's jumping from ship to ship, Oh, I know what this reminds me of. What was that movie with um, uh, Hayden Christensen? The Jumper. Wasn't it called Jumper? Oh, You know okay. what I'm talking about? Yeah, That's I've, what I've not Wesley seen is. it, but I, I okay. think I know the one He's you mean. He's a Jumper. So Wesley's jumping around, and after, uh, after some peril that they were in, he takes Colleen back to this, this shuttle that they were in, and they get there, and let's just say that there's a hidden bad guy on there and he shoots her. Bam. Well, there's two of them, mm-hmm. two uh, scavengers on there and uh, shoots her and she dies. And he, she gets like, they even eventually hit uh blow a hole in the ship and she gets sucked out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why it sounds funny the way I'm saying it, but anyway, um, I, ca- I like this part because and oh man, it's just, there's the trope there too. I should have seen it coming because mm-hmm. Wesley and Colleen confess their love for each other. I love you. Moments I before. love you too. <laughs> Jump to the ship. Bam. She's killed. No. And Wesley turns to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. Uh, <laughs> but no, the, I like this scene because of Wesley's reaction. And all of a sudden uh, he's picturing I take that back. That's a bit of a spoiler too, but I know we're in spoiler spoiler territory, but all of a sudden he starts killing the Orions, the ones that killed her and the Orions that are on the Orion ship. And I was like, wow. I mean, he really has basically gone to the dark side, but then this is a vision he's playing in his head of what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. But that scene was really dramatic of her dying, his emotional reaction, and then him going around killing Orions. That was pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying in a good way. It was Mm. just, it took me off guard. Yeah. To me, it, it feels a bit tropey with, uh, and I mean, you know, as much as I'm not a big fan of the character herself, I also was kind of annoyed that the author went down the route of, you know, establishing this relationship and making her mean something to Wesley only to kill her to provide motivation for him to do his thing kind of thing. It's it's just it like, I don't know if I'm using the term totally correctly, but you've heard of the term fridging a character, you know, and it's just all motivation for the main character to, you know, I, it just, it bugged me a little bit. I have to say, um, as much as I didn't really like the character all that much to have her just kind of thrown away and used that way was a little annoying to me, but, uh, it was definitely powerful that it brought out some very, uh, that, that scene you're talking about where Wesley's picturing what he's doing to these Orions was incredibly powerful. And yeah, it, it shook me a bit. And then you realize, Oh, okay. It's not real, but still that's what went through his mind. Like that's crazy. I love it. But uh, it's still just in the back of my mind. I'm like, uh, really? <laughs> I don't know. 
I guess I was taken by surprise by her getting shot and killed because when they said she was shot, I figured she probably isn't dead. Right. How many times do we see our main characters get shot and it's like, you know, they're in the shoulder and, you know, oh, I can't help you right now. And, you know, so then Wesley would be like, you just lay there and I'll take care of, you know, whatever. But it was like, boom, she's dead. You know, yeah. and I was like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, and they, they, they blew the hole her. in the ship just to make absolutely sure <laughs> that we knew. Right. And she gets sucked out. Whoa. Okay. She really is dead. Okay. Or are they going to try to bring her back? Nope. Why not? I mean, she's, they don't have to bring her back. So, and then when he goes killing the Orions, I was like, okay, that's not very Star Trek of you there, Wesley. And uh, <laughs> you're a murderer now. Okay. Wow. This is a dark place for the Wesley character. And then. Of course, it's revealed he was thinking about that in his head of what he really wanted to do. And I was kind of like, and I guess in a sense, a little disappointed because, boy, that would make Wesley a very interesting character to go forward with for someone who would do something like this. But at the same time, we would say Wesley wouldn't do that. Right. Yeah. I I liked the way they went with it because I, I didn't, like I said, this is my third time reading this book, but I didn't remember that exact part and the way it went down so you know yeah when he starts killing those orions i'm my mouth's agape staring at the book while i'm reading that part so yeah it was it was used to good effect there for sure so i was picturing wesley crusher and chloe from smallville against uh shrek i mean Hmm. i have all these crossovers no i didn't picture shrek i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so uh in our goodreads group i put it out there for anyone who had read a time to die to ask if anybody had any questions or any topics they wanted us to discuss on the show and i think this would be a good place to bring up what uh, brandon harbeck asked in goodreads and he had a couple points so we'll touch on this first one because it relates to the rela- relationship not between wesley crusher um well, I guess yeah, between Wesley Crusher and Cabot, and he wanted to know about uh, how we feel about the relationship between the two and how it developed, which I, we pretty much covered. But you know, he says that this was one of the main criticisms of the novel in Trek BBS in the past decade, and he was wondering how it struck us in this reading, and he said he never had a problem with it himself. So I, I want to, we basically have already covered that, but... I'm just wondering what was probably said in Trek BBS. I tried to go back and look and I couldn't find anything mm. on it. But I was also wondering about the relationship to, the relationship between Crusher and Colleen Cabot. Because uh, Crusher at first doesn't like her. But as soon as she finds out that she knows Wesley and is dating Wesley, she seems to fall in love with her too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think I've made... You know, my feelings on their relationship, like uh, Wesley and, and Cabot, kind of clear, I guess. I'm not I'm not totally opposed to the relationship. I just felt it moved really fast. And, you know, and then the way it ended felt like it was just used for this bit of extra pathos to me. But, you know, all that aside, I, you know, it's something Star Trek does pretty commonly so i guess it kind of fits but yeah beverly and uh and colleen and their kind of relationship i hadn't really thought of that angle it's kind of interesting and and i like that idea of you know wesley is um i don't know how old he'd be at this point he was probably 20 when he last appeared in the next generation 
when he was leaving Starfleet Academy. So this is probably like 10 years later or something like that. I remember so. them saying it had been seven years. Oh, okay. So late twenties, probably yeah. somewhere in there. And, uh, I think that's an interesting time period for like, a a parent child relationship. And especially in the case of Wesley, this is somebody who's gone off on his own to the nth degree. Like he's gone off on his own, you know, and left the nest for sure. And so that, that idea of Crusher seeing her son come back, but at the same time also falling in love with this woman, you know, that's an interesting thing that I kind of wish this book had maybe delved into a little bit more was, uh, Crusher's feelings about all this. We do get a bit of that for sure, but you know, I, I really, I think Star Trek has done parent-child relationships really well in the past. So that's something I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of, maybe. Yeah, Dr. Crusher has been missing Wesley for, again, seven years. She hasn't seen him through all this time. And the first book ended with uh, Wesley revealing himself to Beverly that he's back and he's here to save the Enterprise. And that's the last line of the book is him saying that he's there to save the Enterprise. So now we're into this book and she knows that her son is back and he is well. And she also knows of his disguise as Brewster. And she, you know, he's not with her all the time. He's doing his duty of trying to save things and correct things and prevent certain things from happening. So she knows he's out there and he, she knows he's in, in a certain amount of danger. But then uh, Colleen says something while she's near Dr. Crusher that kind of reveals a little hint to Crusher that, oh my gosh, I think she knows that Brewster, Brewster is Wesley and she's been talking to Wesley. And my sense is that Dr. Crusher Dr. Crusher has been so desperate to reconnect with her son again at this point, knowing that he's back, but she's not going to have the time with him and to know what he's doing. But she sees Colleen as that conduit to find out where Wesley is and what he's doing, because if there is this romantic relationship, it's going to bring him back to the Enterprise and to her probably more often than he would to his mother. Hmm. So going back to the parent-son relationship, yeah. I think she knows that Colleen's going to probably end up having a closer relationship with Wesley because he's older now and he's going to come to his girlfriend before he comes to his mom. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And, and there's definitely that aspect to it for sure. And especially coupled with um, Wesley's belief that if he pursues this relationship and becomes closer to his human side, he'll no longer be a traveler. So I kind of almost wonder if in the back of Beverly's mind, she's, you know, kind of hoping that happens, you know, because well, did. and that was what we kind of got that from Wesley too, because if Wesley knows that he's going to lose his powers and he's now in love with Colleen, I think I would have liked to seen Wesley not just come to terms. Well, I may lose my powers to save the enterprise, but it's worth it. But now I want to lose my power so I can be with Colleen. Mm hmm. Yeah, that would have been an interesting angle for sure. <laughs> but that I, that was never really explored mm -hmm. as far as I can tell and remember. But yeah. um, but Brandon also had a second point uh, separate from that. But uh, he asked, did this duology effectively communicate that this series was a bridge between insurrection and nemesis, either through the marketing or in the writing itself? 
I thought this was an interesting question because mm-hmm. we know, I, I don't recall and I don't have the book in front of me. Does it mention, at least in book one or in this book, that this series takes place shortly after insurrection? Because in the story, I remember, in the at least in the first book, there was mention about the Baku and they had just dealt with that maybe a year earlier. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, the the marketing and stuff and and the back cover cover blurb of all of these books tend to mention Nemesis a bit more, kind of uh saying that this is setting up what we see in Nemesis. So for example, the back of this novel says, "On the cusp of their epic battle with Shinzon, many of Captain Jean-Luc Picard's longtime crew were heading for new assignments and new challenges." Among the changes were William Riker's promotion to captain in his new command, Riker's marriage to Counselor Deanna Troy, and Dr. Beverly Crusher's new career at Starfleet Medical. But the story of what set them on a path away from the Starship Enterprise has never been told. Until now. And I, and I do remember when these were coming out, it was kind of um, a reaction to all of the changes that Nemesis had. And it was kind of like, well, let's tell the story of, of how they got there. So... I, I seem to remember them kind of pushing it as that way. And and then, you know, the back cover blurb does mention that. I remember that too. I remember it was marketed or referred to as almost like a pre-Nemesis series. Like you're saying, mm. setting up the things we saw in Nemesis, especially with Worf. Because, you know, Worf was an ambassador after we saw Deep Space Nine and now he's on the Enterprise again. How did Worf get there? And, uh, you know, how did Riker get command of the Titans and... Troy and Riker getting married, you know, all those things, which we have yet to explore in these two books. And Worf isn't even a factor in, in any of these two. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know if I heard something or whatever, but my impression was that these books took place a year before Nemesis. But now reading these books, at least these two books, this storyline, I think is a little closer to insurrection. Like I feel Mm -hmm. like these books are the gap between the two movies and not necessarily just the year before nemesis, because I mean, we've got what a few years uh, between insurrection and nemesis in the timeline. I think so. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it it kind of makes sense that this, uh, this feels like it's a little bit more immediately post dominion war kind of in that, period in there so yeah they mentioned that about the dominion war yeah yeah well of course a lot of this is the wreckage from the dominion war that we're around Mm -hmm. and it feels like this story should take some time i feel like these two books probably don't take a lot of time but i think to make sense they should take more time so you know the enterprise is on duty at this battle site and then this incident happens then they go back to earth picard's relieved of command you know and then they get back on the enterprise eventually and head back out like i feel like that should be a good couple months kind of thing i don't know did that feel like that's what it was i guess i guess some time does pass in the two books so it's possible this could be you know a two to three four month thing yeah it's not specifically told the time but that's the impression i got too is mm-hmm. we've got maybe a, a couple months yeah okay. I, i'm with you on that and you mentioned picard um so what do you think of jean-luc picard in this book <laughs> well this was actually one aspect of the story that i found interesting was uh the fish out of water story for picard where he's back on his ship 
but it's not his ship at the moment. You know, Riker's in command and Picard is, you know, just a passenger. Um, that doesn't really last very long in the story. We kind of get them separated from the Enterprise and on this mission on a, you know, little kind of scout ship into the Rationer battle site. Uh, but for that period where he's on board the Enterprise, it's it's an interesting bit of exploration of, you know, how, how Picard's reacting to this, how he feels about being on his ship but not in command. And I would have liked them to have focused on that a little bit more. I think uh, people who have listened to this podcast know that I really like deep character explorations. And, you know, I could have done with a little bit less of the flying around and getting in bar fights and, you know, attacking Orions and you know, all this kind of stuff. And a little bit more of, you know, what does this really mean for Picard to have his command taken away and him having to go and prove himself to a fleet that should take his word as Bond because, you know, he's certainly earned that by now. So, you know, how does he really feel about all this and how, what what's his ultimate reaction to all of that that's the exploration that i wanted to really see in this book in book one it starts off with picard questioning you know should he continue to command a starship you know he's looking at his age you know what where's my future where am i going with things and he ultimately decides you know he wants to keep doing what he's been doing he continues to be captain of the enterprise when he's removed from that command he seems too readily accepting of what they're doing to him at starfleet and kind of setting him up as putting him on trial and setting him up to um take the fall mm -hmm. uh, for what happened at that time, when I read the book, it made sense to me because I felt as if Picard was looking at this and thinking, okay, some of this is political, some of this is for the best of the Federation, I think this will all work out. You know, he's, he is a bit annoyed with things, a bit annoyed with having a counselor, but I think he's, he's trying to be patient is what I'm getting at. Then we get to this book and he's able to return to the Enterprise, but not into the captain position. But I agree with you. I like how it starts off with he's that fish out of water, but then we seem to just abandon that. And I think with how things were set up in book one at the beginning, it would have been interesting to have him back on the Enterprise. And he's really struggling with the loss of command because he has just decided that his future going forward will continue to serve on the starship. Mm -hmm. And now that's been taken away from him. And He's there, but he can't be captain. And what does this mean? And where is he going? And, you know, I would think there was just a lot more of questioning it and starting to really resent Starfleet and this position they put him in because now he's got to figure out what am I going to do now? What am I going to do the rest of my life? I mean, I'm going to help with this situation, but what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And what does this mean with my relationship with even Beverly? Yeah, and I feel like a lot of that was kind of abandoned for in, in this book, which, you know, in, in this book we see a Picard who's more, uh, I, I don't want to say obsessed, but he's really trying to get this this ghost ship. He's really trying to chase after it and he wants to kill it. 
and, uh, you know, by doing so reclaim his life kind of thing. And I think the only reason that they don't compare him to Captain Ahab in this book is because, oh, they already did that with First Contact. So we're just going to not outright say it. But a couple times he does feel like, you know, Lily should burst into the conference lounge and said, Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale, you know, because that's what he seems to be doing here. And, and, you know, it's almost more literal because this big giant space creature, maybe, uh, you know, does kind of feel like a whale a bit. So I, I don't know this, it, it just, it feels like the story really shift shifts gears and it doesn't feel like it's consistent with what we saw in the previous book. Yeah. Now, I agree. And we were talking on the other side of the page that the first book, I felt it felt like two parts. There was the first part, which takes place in this area of these graveyard ships and such, and with this ghost ship. And then the second part is dealing with Picard at Starfleet, and he's on trial and dealing with this counselor and such. And then this book feels like a part three. Mm-hmm. Not a part three and four. It seems like it's a three-part book and two parts were put in the first book and the last part was put in a second book and stretched out. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I think like we were saying, like you say on the other side of the page, I feel like a lot of the stuff in here can be taken out and have this compressed a little bit. And uh, yeah, there's it, this doesn't feel like it should be two books. And I'm a little worried going forward in this series if we're going to feel like this for a lot of these books because, you know, it's a nine-part story made up of four duologies and then a final book. So these duologies, I'm I'm a little concerned we're going to start thinking they should all just be one book because it really, they don't feel like they stand on their own apart. It feels like they just kind of said, okay, uh, we'll put a line between Acts 2 and 3 and mm-hmm. split the book there. And then, like right. you said, stretch out act three to fill a novel, because there's a lot of just kind of meandering around here where, you know, I don't know, like I said, they're they're going to this bar and they're getting captured as slaves and then they're escaping and then they're blowing up the bar. And then, like, it's just, there's a lot of stuff here that I don't feel really moves the plot forward. Uh, or I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just cynical and jaded, but it just, yeah, it feels like there's a lot of treading water in this book that doesn't need to be there. Well, let's talk about that creature ship that you had mentioned a little while ago. Now this is a shape shifting ship and it's more biological than mechanical and it uses matter, antimatter conversion. And it picks the closest living ship and replicates itself to be like that ship and they use the analogy it's like a cancer cell that mimics a healthy cell and feeds off of it now this entity sucks the antimatter from the working ship and there's a rift to an alternate universe where this entity comes from and this universe is made of antimatter and the ship this entity is gathering and returning the antimatter to the realm where the antimatter had escaped. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a little, I thought it was interesting. I thought, you know, an interesting take. At first I thought they were going to 
play this as a shape-shifting creature, and I guess in some sense it is, but it's almost like a, a bee taking honey back, you know, going to a flower and, and creating honey back at the at the what am I trying to say? The beehive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to say the bee starship or the bee <laughs> space station. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting science fiction thing uh, when they mention the antimatter universe, and I think Brandon Chamatala will get a kick out of this. I immediately thought of the alternative factor, and it's like, oh, the antimatter universe. But what of Lazarus, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And I I don't know, the, the creature, creature, I guess, or ship, it, it's never made entirely clear, I guess. Um, it's, uh, I everything's kind of wrapped up in a nice, neat package, which is good, I guess. But the, the ultimate answer just kind of seemed to fall a little bit flat for me. I mean, you know, I, I didn't want to say this in the first book because it would be a spoiler, but we have set up in that book, Wesley seeing the enterprise on auto destruct and blowing up. And in that same book, we're also introduced to a ship that mimics other ships. And I'm like, okay, well, I know where we're going with this. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we all know that Wesley just saw a glimpse of, of this thing and, you know, it's got to be the mimic ship. And of course that is ultimately what plays out here. So it's, it's kind of one of those things where I was like, okay, yeah, I saw that coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it was, you know, it was interesting. It checked all the boxes for, (laughs) to, to solve the mystery, I guess. Yeah. I like, it's, it's an interesting concept with the antimatter and, and the ship. Um, I didn't really have any problems with it. I like that's from this, alternate universe and it's trying to reclaim things that it, they it's thinking that's escaped from the universe and trying to bring it back and it's not really on a mission to try to destroy or kill people it's just you know it's that's what its nature is to mm-hmm. bring antimatter back to its universe so I mean, I kind of liked it. I mean, the fact that it can form itself exactly like a starship to even to the point where we see Wesley go on to this duplicate enterprise, it's like even inside the ship is identical. But at the same time, it's described as if, you know, the paint is still wet, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it's quite it's a lot like the enterprise inside, but there's something a little different about it, almost a newness to it. That's not quite true. Yeah, but at the same time, it replicates it so exactly that because the Enterprise's auto-destruct system is on, it's on on the Mimic ship as well and ultimately blows up, which I thought strained credibility a little bit. Like, I I don't, that seems odd (laughs) that it would duplicate it so exactly like that. It's very convenient and it works out well for the plot, but... Do you think if the ship existed in how much for just the planet that would have duplicated the spilled peppermint milkshake? <laughs> Definitely. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we also have the 
Antalians in here that are the primitive beings that uh, are Federation members. I've always kind of had a little bit of an issue with this race, even in the first book. Not not a big issue, but they're so primitive, but yet they're members, new members of the Federation, but they don't really seem to interact that much with the Federation, and they kind of stand on their own. I would have liked to maybe have seen a backstory of how they and you know were found and and come to the point of joining the Federation. I think this would be an interesting race to go back to at some point. But mm-hmm. they did evolve into an advanced civilization. I mean, they were primitive, but they're advanced now, but there's still something primitive about them because they, they, they are hunters and they allow predatory animals to run free. And therefore, the ship, at least that's how they act with the animals on their planet, but now with this ghost ship, they deem it as the Dominion Flyer, and they're doing the same thing. It's a predatory animal, so therefore it shouldn't be destroyed or killed. It should be able to run free. Mm-hmm. So, you know, taking this race that looks at things in that manner, it makes sense that in a lot of ways that they would protect the ship, mm-hmm. even though it's destroying things. Yeah, that was one thing I, I appreciated that they did in the story was we got a little glimpse at their home world, and... uh I think that was in this book, right? Was yes, this? through Wesley. Okay, yeah. And uh, yeah, they're, they're a fascinating enough culture that I would love to see a little bit more of them. And they have this odd behavior of, yeah, there's this predatory animal that kind of goes through their village and a bunch of them basically sacrifice themselves to it to kind of appease it and send it on its way. Uh, or at least that's kind of the impression I got as to what they were doing. And you know, like you say, that holds true with what they do with this demon flyer, as they call it. And it's, it's interesting. I like when, uh, Star Trek aliens have a completely different viewpoint from us and see the universe in a different way. And I like that the story used that to explain a bit of what was going on in this, you know, weird area of space and explains a little bit about what happened during the war and that kind of thing. So I, I, yeah, I like when they, they use that to their advantage and really present us with something truly alien in the way they think. We have another character in here, Friston, and he's an Andrasi, uh, and that's a race that plays a part as, uh, savagers in here. Um, they're, go- well, anyway, the, this character Kind of reminded me of Oxley from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> he's kind of lost his marbles in a sense. He's been imprisoned by the, the pack lids and they're holding him for ransom because he's found a way to harvest the antimatter and the crew of the Enterprise feel like they could utilize him to find this demon flyer, this ghost ship. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but he's kind of a little nutty and a little weird. And then he goes on the adventure with Picard and Wesley and Colleen. And I mean, I, he was almost a bit of a comic relief in a sense. I don't know if he really added that much to the story, in my opinion. I'd have to really think about that a little more. But mm-hmm. I did want to throw him in here because he, he did play a part in the book. And I didn't want to overlook him. Yeah, I, I was interested in this character at first. I thought, you know, he was... Like you said, he's lost his marbles a bit. He's a bit nutty. Um, and and I liked that aspect of him and, you know, how he had been, you know, harmed by what happened and how he had kind of this insight into what was going on. 
And then I, I kind of lost interest in the character when he turned total villain <laughs> towards the end and helped the Ontalians take over the Enterprise. I was just like, oh, okay. You know, he was just kind of faking, not faking it, but he was, you know, playing dumb a little bit to kind of get the Enterprise crew's trust. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I see where the, that went kind of thing. So kind of, yeah, interesting, interesting to start out with, but he fizzled a little bit for me as the story went on. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So uh, we also heard from our listener, Daniel, who's known as Dan in Tennessee in Goodreads. And he has a couple points here. He says, I really love this book for a lot of the reasons you have already discussed about part one. But if I have any concerns or gripes, they would be these. Regarding the theme of Picard in the doghouse, is it dealt with in a way that is consistent with his history? Why isn't his version of the story entitled to at least some further investigation? How many times has he saved Earth at this point, for example? And yeah, we've talked about that uh, when we did book one in the previous episode. Um, I, I feel like I feel like the Starfleet officers or executives or commanders that put him into this position of taking the keys away from Picard, it was done for more political reasons mm -hmm. than anything, than not necessarily believing him. I think there's a, a sense that they don't believe him, but they... Maybe that's not the correct assessment. It's more that they they aren't sure if they should believe him, but I think that they do, but they mm -hmm. still have to question it. But if anything, they're doing this for political reasons. Yeah, I agree. I think it's pretty clear that uh, the Ontalians are, you know, they're worried about losing a member of the Federation. And you know, even though they're a recent addition to the Federation because of the Dominion War and, and you know, all of that, and that's how they came into the Federation for protection, you know, they don't want to lose these members. And they, they talk about how the Ontalians are kind of representative of a bunch of different species that are recent additions that, you know, their hold on them is kind of tenuous at best. So they don't want a domino reaction of people leaving the Federation and, you know, it's, it's unfair to Picard, but you know, it, it's, it's very political. They kind of just want to sweep it under the rug and, you know, slap Picard on the wrist and get him off the ship and see, we, we solved it. It's everything's fine. Now you can stay in the Federation. There's a lot, seems to be a lot more going on though, too, with Admiral Nakamura and, and all of this kind of stuff behind the scenes. And that kind of stuff, I feel like the book just kind of drops too at the end. Like we don't know, you know, what Nakamura's real um, motivations were here. He seems like he's pulling some pretty shady stuff. Now, I, I honestly don't remember if that's picked up in later books in this series, if that's a continuing thing or if that's just something that we don't ever get an explanation for. I honestly don't know. Yeah, of course, I don't know either because uh, I never got past this book, but we will know soon because we're going to do all the others. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so the other point that Daniel mentioned was Data hands over the emotion ship. And is that really consistent with Measure of a Man? Why should Starfleet have a property interest in his emotions any more than any other officer? It seems to me that he complied too readily, which, again, just wasn't consistent with what we know as far back as season two. And then that plot thread did not get resolved. Um, and the fact that this thought, this 
plot thread did not get resolved in this book doesn't mean it won't in the future books. And again, we don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. So I'll kind of leave that open as a possibility that we're going to find something more in these books. But I remember in the first book reading this and even in the second book at the beginning when he's uh, when Day is talking to Jordy about the emotion ship. I mean, logically, the reason of, well, you know, I was brought into Starfleet as is. The emotion ship is something that was added to me lately. So it's not really part of Starfleet property or my property. I, I don't know. It, it He did seem to readily say, okay, if you need to take, take the emotion ship, go ahead and take it. Mm-hmm. And if anything, maybe, you know, LaForge is a little more upset about it because LaForge has emotions and Data doesn't. But... I do want to hear more from data on that. I just, I wish it would have affected him a little more or have him question it and fight it a little more than he did before turning it over to Starfleet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there is that he does seem to acquiesce pretty quickly. I, I do feel like, and I could be totally wrong about this, but you know, this series of books is designed to set up what we see in nemesis And if you watch Star Trek Nemesis, I've seen things out there. I don't know if this was intentional or official or anything, but Data is kind of especially emotionless in Nemesis. And I'm wondering if the implication is that he doesn't have his emotion chip sometime in between Insurrection and Nemesis. If if they're saying here in this book, maybe he doesn't have it in nemesis and that's why he acts the way he does because that's another thing i've seen about nemesis is people people are like data seems really emotionless does you know what happened with his whole emotion chip story what's going on there so i don't know like is that what the book is saying didn't they develop a new emotion chip in this too or between this book and the last book there's a, a prototype what was it? Nakamura said there's a prototype chip that can do other things that we want to try out in the slot for the emotion chip. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that like, I don't think pla- this is a good idea. And right. Wesley steals it away. So I, I don't think it was an emotion chip. I think they're trying to do something else, which again, yeah, I don't know. That seems to be a hanging plot thread. So I'm, a, I'm I've got to assume that gets picked up later because you know, what's going on there? What's that all about? Hmm. I guess we will find out. Well, Daniel's other point is, are we satisfied with the resolution of the Wesley subplot? He's told that he is not allowed to interfere, but then he does. And that's dot, dot, dot fine. Apparently, you know, I'm glad he brought this up because the way this ended, Wesley does lose his powers as his, you know, during his final act of saving the ship when he's, you know, the countdown destruction on the duplicate ship, but he gets beamed back to the enterprise and he's saved and everything's fine, but he has no powers. But then his traveler friend shows up and says, well, you passed the test and Wesley has his powers back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier. It just, it, yeah, it deflates the sails of this story completely because the entire tension from the last two books about that is just like, eh, it's fine. And again, maybe this is something that's picked up again later in the series. I don't know, but it just, it seems really 
kind of cheap that Wesley's so worried about this for these two books. And then just in the last two pages, they're like, you know, eh, no, it was no big deal. You passed your test. Good job. And uh, it's it's like it's part of the big reason I think a lot of people hate that Deep Space Nine episode, Move Along Home, which I, I secretly, not so secretly, I guess, but I actually really like, <laughs> which is <laughs> horrible. But, you know, at the very end, they've, they've gone through all of this and, you know, Bashir and and Dax have died in this game and they've been put through hell and they're, you know, Cisco's like, you threatened us and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, it's only a game. And then they leave the station and that's the end of the episode. And that's kind of what this feels like, you know, as much as I like move along home, I understand why it fails on almost every level as far as being a good story. And this, yeah, it just takes the sales out of everything. Like, Oh, well, what was Wesley so worried about then? You know? Yeah. It, it fell short. I mean, I, I don't mind necessarily that that was the resolution, but it was just, oh, you have your powers back. You passed the test. Okay. I mean, that's almost essentially what it was like at the end. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, wait, that's, that's, that's it? Like, Wesley's not even going to question that? Like, what do you mean I passed the test? Yeah. Wait, I don't, do I, I don't know if I even deserve to have the powers back. Do you know what I just did? I violated everything that you guys said that I shouldn't do. I don't understand what this means and allow the traveler to explain. Yeah. This was, like, I don't yeah. even know what the test is. Like right. what test did he pass? Did he, did he pass the test of saying that he wouldn't use his powers and then using them? Like, that's not like, I don't, I don't get what aspect of what he did is the test that he passed, you know? And I feel like we kind of need that. Like just even just another page of explanation would have gone a long way to making me go, oh, I've, I'm very satisfied with this ending, you know? I, does this mean Wesley can always jump around and save the Enterprise all the time? Like, yeah, because in that case, cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, we need a little more there. So, uh, I don't know. It's not that I didn't like the book, and we'll get, I, I, this is a good time to get into our final thoughts. It's just, there's just, I think that's it. There was just times it was just seemed to stretch a little too long or things were redundant at times. And, and then there's times where things just fell flat. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, tell me why this was a test that Wesley passed and what that means. And, 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 and show me why that Colleen and Wesley fell in love. Let's explore maybe that relationship earlier when you were in book one. Maybe they met then and and developed something over time. But by the time they got to the Enterprise, they kind of had a friendship, some kind of history behind them. And that was starting to develop into something more romantic. And maybe there's something in, you know, tell me something in Colleen's past that, you know, there's a reason why she's so attracted to Wesley because of, X, Y, and Z, you know, just, just a little more of that. Like you said, character, give us more of that character exploration and, and what Picard's going through. I think if you really would have just focused more on Picard's 
inner dialogue of what he's going to do for the future and how things are going on in Starfleet and how he wants to handle it. And Wesley trying to figure out his self and what he's going to do going forward. Is he going, does he want to continue on as a traveler? Is it worth risking losing his abilities to save the enterprise? And, and why is he falling in love with this girl? There's just so much there that I really wish we would have explored. I like the first book a lot. This one just kind of fell a little flat for me. Yeah, I think you and I are on the same page with this one. Um, so much of this book just seems to me to be wasted potential because I really, really did enjoy that first book. I think I gave it four out of five. Like it was, it was a good book. I was really invested, really interested in what comes next and what happens. And it just feels like this entire book is, <laughs> I, I don't want to get, you know, too down on it but the entire book it just felt like air being slowly let out of a balloon until you get to the end like just everything interesting that i found in the first part of the story is just kind of discarded or slowly kind of whittled away until we're left with you know something that was really underwhelming and you know really to me hollow it just yeah it's wasted potential because there's so many interesting character things and like like you said, it's character for me, it's always character. And I feel like a lot of that was done away with in order to have more action, more kind of, you know, crazy flights through Rashinar and, and, you know, this, uh, confrontation with the, the creature finally at the end. And, you know, we get a character that even though I didn't really like her to me is just kind of thrown away in order to provoke an emotional response out of Wesley, which I don't think is really fair to Colleen Cabot's or Cabot's character. I you know, I would have liked to have seen a better ending for her. Um, and yeah, for all of those reasons, I just, yeah, I just unsatisfied, I think would be the word of the day on this one. So what would you rank it? You did four out of five on the first book. I'm going to guess this is going to be less than four. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read this back in 2013, the last time. And at that time I gave it a pretty low rating and I thought maybe revisiting it this time, I might find more in here to give it a bit of a higher rating, but I, I just, it, I didn't really do that. I couldn't really find anything in there to pull that up. So unfortunately I would have to give it, uh, two, um, two abandoned Starfleet chips out of five in the Rationer battle site. I read this book a few years ago and I saw in Goodreads, I gave it three out of five. Uh, maybe I'd go a little lower now, but I'll, I'll, I think because I liked the first book and even though th there was some disappointment in the second book, I think because what the first book did for me, it elevates the whole story for me as a whole, um, even in this part. So I would just say I'll stick with three out of five dead Orions that Wesley killed. Oh, <laughs> thankfully it's an imaginary rating. So it's imaginary <laughs> rating, right. <laughs> well, and the other thing I find interesting too is this whole book series of A Time 2, I didn't feel that this book ended with any kind of cliffhanger or any hint that there's another book that you need to read that like it didn't set anything up i mean it's mm -hmm. to me it just feels like it's two books that are 
you put together and stand on their own. I, I don't feel like there's anything that says, ooh, now I got to read the third book now to see what happens next. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that's by design. I think it was supposed to be like a series of duologies that are just kind of loosely connected. But yeah, it would have been nice to have a little bit more of a connective tissue there of some kind. And like I say, I hope they they explore what's going on with Data and Nakamura and all this stuff too, because um, hopefully there's more to that story. I hope that's not just where it ends because I don't know what's going on there. And this book didn't really do a lot to resolve that. Yeah, and I think what, the next book is called A Time to Sew. Yeah. And it's not about making clothes, I'm assuming. <laughs> Other kind of sew. Yeah, it's the, it's the like, planting type of sewing. Oh, the S-O-W. <laughs> so, okay. So it's not Wesley is a traveler and now he's the traveling pants. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a, his next journey as a traveler is to uh, make that gray unitard that they wear. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is going to be interesting, the third book, because it's written by our friend Dayton Ward. So, you know, if we don't like this one, Dayton's just back there in the green room and he's complaining about that wet bar still not being there. So (laughs) it could get ugly. So I feel like we're both on the same page that this, you know, was kind of a bit of a disappointing ending to this uh, two book duology the first part of this nine part, would that be a non-ology? I'm I'm not sure what we would call that. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, it's very telling, uh, how, well, I don't know if it's telling, it's just, it reminds me of some movies. Like sometimes I go to see a movie and I think it's really good for a while. And then it gets like towards the end and it's just big action sequences. And it's like, okay, like, I really wish we'd just explore that story more than just feeling like you have to make it all action. It kind of feels that way in a sense. I think, mm-hmm. you know, that I think if I sat down and read the two books together, immediately read uh, the second book after the first book, uh, I was going to say maybe it would have played a little better, but waiting a few weeks, we have the anticipation and then again there and it's like, eh, not quite right. But anyway, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I, I did enjoy no. it. It's fun. Yeah, I say for that sure. about every book. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're still reading Star Trek novels, and you know, as 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 disappointing as I found elements of this book, it's still you know, I'm still glad that I read it, and I'm excited to finally read these nine books all together. So, yeah, no, it's it's all part of the journey. You know, you can't you can't just take it out and throw it away but it's just not been my favorite so far. <laughs> yeah. And we did get to see Christine Vale in here who eventually mm-hmm. becomes the Titan first officer and well, eventually even the captain. So yep. Bleep, giving that away. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> but that was pretty cool to see her uh, make an appearance in the book too. But it's, yeah. you know, Christine Vale isn't the only thing we're talking about here on Trek FM. So uh, check out what else is happening here on the network. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! You really did reorient my thinking about the mess hall. Now I need to rewatch every scene with the mess hall and, and try to visualize Neelix's kitchen as the captain's dining room. I just assumed that when, when she said, this used to be my private dining room, that she meant the whole mess hall, like the entire room that they're in. That would be 
be gigantic. How have I watched Voyager for what is now 23 years and not realized this? The 602 Club. He can be soft and caring and then suddenly be funny and sarcastic, but he's, you know, it's sort of that scene where he's with his um, therapist in the car and she's supposed to be evaluating him and he's saying, uh, she goes, you know, I, I love this just as much as the next girl, but, and then she said something like, who's that girl? Oh, the next girl. The next girl. <laughs> the one who clearly is better than you. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. You know, Admiral Cornwall, like, let's discuss this more and, you know, take off your comm badge. Like, who would do that to an admiral? And so it's like, how did he have that, you know, knowledge? Warp 5. Good thing they had those peaches at the start of the episode. Good thing he convinced her to bite it. The moral of the story is always eat your peaches. Mm -hmm. Yes. Chekhov's gun. Telling you. Chekhov's peach. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button when you're checking us out in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app. And you can get all of the latest episodes as soon as they're published, both of this podcast and all the other ones on the Trek FM network. And while you're there, please leave us a star rating and written review. We love getting your reviews. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. You know, there's actually costs to producing and delivering podcasts to you. And uh, we could, you know, use a little help with that. So we would like to ask you to become a patron of the network through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. And there you'll see all the details, including all the perks you get, like early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. And these are available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. So it requires that money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd also love to hear any thoughts you have on today's show, and there are lots of ways you can get in contact with us. The best place, of course, to join in the larger conversation is through the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send Bruce or me an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that'll come right to us. And you can also find the network on Twitter. We're at trek.fm. And on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And if you were listening to this episode, you know we have a Goodreads group because we had Daniel and Brandon uh, send us some questions and topics they wanted to discuss on the show. And thank you guys for doing that. And if you want to check out the Goodreads group, just go to goodreads.com and search for literary tracks and then click join group and we'll let you right in. You can participate in any of the conversations about the books and see what books we used we covered on previous episodes 
what we're currently reading, and what's coming up on future episodes. So there's a wealth of information in there about the books on Literary Trek, so check that out. And we'd also like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So Dan, when you're not line dancing, where can people find you? Well, when I'm not uh, doing the boot scootin' boogie or whatever else you do for line dancing, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I also have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Productions, And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions. Instagram, I'm Kurtrats47, and I'm sure I still have a Tumblr out there somewhere, but I could not tell you what it's called. And uh, you can always find me in the Babel Conference as well. And Bruce, when you're not lying on a table wondering what the heck kind of chip Admiral Nakamura plans to put in your emotion chip port, where can we find you? I hope it's a Pringle chip. (laughs) Like sour cream and onion flavor chip. (laughs) But you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me on Instagram at just Admiral Rex, no underscore. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. So check that out. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference and uh, participating, but mostly reading what everybody's saying. So if you're not in the Babel Conference on Facebook, go do that now. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.